0: I lived on dread, to those who know the stimulus there is in danger, other impetus is numb and vital lists. As to where a spur upon the soul, a fear will urge it where, to go without the spectre's aid, or challenging despair. Emily Dickinson, I lived on dread. Fear. It lives with all of us. Human fear is varied and rich, taking on a multitude of forms and specificities. We polish our fears over a lifetime, cradling them gently and smoothing their edges until they are something uniquely ours. Most of us, though, don't build fortresses around our fear that extend into the real world. Why would anyone choose that life? Well, it turns out, preppers have plenty of good arguments for it, arguments that can be difficult to dismiss outright. People talk about collapse as though it's in the far-off future and as if it will hit everyone, everywhere, at the same moment Sarah Dwin, a self-identified feminist prepper writes, many, many people are already living in a state of collapse. It doesn't matter if the rest of the world is going merrily on when you've been evicted, your kids are hungry, you have an infected tooth and you can't take care of it, and you're trying not to let anyone know the family's been sleeping in the minivan. The fear of dying of exposure or hunger or natural disaster is more solid in the minds of some Americans than others. In a post-Katrina, post-Texas power grid failure world, Americans in lower socioeconomic classes and Americans of color have realized that they're very much on their own when disaster strikes. How unreasonable is it then for them to prepare? So then, when does preparedness cross over into pathology? What makes one prepper a hobbyist and another a militant survivalist? What are warning signs we can use to determine whether a mental health professional needs to step into the situation and prevent tragedy? The answer is, if mental health professionals validate preppers' fears, they can use the emotional space created to provide the best help possible to preppers, should they need any at all. Prepping can be a community-building exercise if the client finds camaraderie within the prepper community, but it can also easily emotionally and socially isolate a client if their close ties are not accepting of their behavior or beliefs. Treating a community as pathology is not a viable way to improve client outcomes in the public mental health. By building relationships with people within communities that are considered outlier or problem communities and more thoroughly understanding their culture and reasoning, clinicians can more easily identify individuals who need more immediate assistance. Addressing a client's belief that the world may soon end and the reaction to it is clinically useful only if the reaction to that belief is also considered. Preppers are responding in their minds to an imminent situation, validate that belief and take their statements in context. Clinicians should not stigmatize an entire group of people based on a reasonable fear, because the issues created are not the fears themselves, but the client's reactions to them. If the fear does not perturb the client or negatively affect their quality of life or relationships, it could be considered no differently than the fear of the deep ocean. Joining me once again for the chat portion of our show to talk about fear, socioeconomic status, and social pressure, and the ultimate goal of self-reliance is my partner, Travis Alba. This is a bit of a personal subject for
1: us, isn't it? I mean, yeah, we were homeless for a while, so this kind of stuff tends to, you know, stick with you.
0: I mean, I almost wish that we had been into prepping before we had been homeless, because we would at least have had a camp stove, some clothes, maybe some canned food. Well, I mean, you were.
1: That's the thing. No,
0: I mean, I was interested in it, but we hadn't, like, invested anything in it. Like, it wasn't something we had worked
1: on. No, we had, like, the baby bug-out bag of seeds.
0: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Like, plant seeds, which, you know, homesteading is great, but if you have literally nothing else, it's Mm -hmm. not gonna get you started on a farm. How are you gonna eat until those plants grow, dumbass? Exactly.
1: um, And even with what we have right now, we're not super great prepared. Like, look at how many stores I had to go to to try and find butane for our camp stove and still didn't end up finding any.
0: Yeah, I mean, supplies are, you know, pretty sto- still pretty hard to find in Salem. So I-, I feel like that's mainly because it's not a major, like, hub. Yeah, like, no, people don't even realize this is the capital of Oregon a lot of the time. I didn't realize this was the capital Me of Oregon either. when <laughs> we moved here, so that feels, you know, pretty reasonable. So our subjects today are fear, mm-hmm. socioeconomic status, social pressure, uh, self-reliance. Um, especially within the Prepper community. So, in terms of fear, I themed this entire essay after an article I read that really resonated with me, uh, by Bradley Garrett, who is cited throughout, obviously, this, uh, whole audio essay, I guess I would call it. Architecture of Dread, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, he made some really interesting points, and one of those points was a chart, uh, which I will share the link for in the description of this episode. Mm -hmm. Um, and this chart is behind an academic paywall, so sorry if I'm breaking the rules here, but it is- I will just say, if you Google,
1: people have found ways to get around those.
0: Oh, true, yeah. Um, So this chart shows the order in which disaster events will happen depending on the the end-of-the-world scenario. Mm -hmm. So it'll say tsunami, and then it'll be social disillusionment, uh, martial law, blah, 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 and the steps in which that'll happen. But it has it for, like, every conceivable possible disaster. And doesn't that kind of, like... I guess to an outsider from outside the proper community, it kind of reads like scare tactics, right?
1: I guess it might read as scare tactics. I mean, like you said, we kind of have a different perspective on this, but I tend to look at it as the philosophy of, of ironically, a joke post that came around when I was much younger, which was essentially the reason that the kid's Superman costume has the label on it that says it doesn't, you know, make you fly, is because some kid hurt themselves jumping off a roof. This information is there and they've thought of it because they know it's a possibility and in some cases likely. So I don't really feel like it's scare tactics so much as just a statement of what we should already know, I guess. But again, I can understand how maybe, you know, the average person whose day is not centered around this stuff, it could read as, why are you trying to scare me, bro?
0: I mean, I've heard so many famous comedians and writers and authors talk about it, but America does kind of have a very afraid culture in a way. Yeah. Like, there other countries don't invest into the negative possibilities the way our country does. Oh,
1: no. America is capitalized on fear. Uh, Doomsday Preppers was a show. Mm-hmm. Uh, that really weird one, Kid Nation, where they literally put a bunch of kids in, like, an abandoned town and had them build a community. Like, they were asking for Lord of the Flies there. Yeah, but I'm more
0: kind of talking <laughs> about where that comes from. Like, culturally, where do you think that fear really comes from? Because, obviously, it had some roots in the 1940s and 50s, like, post-World War II the atomic bomb existed like of yeah. course that's terrifying we we everyone knew that if we can make it someone else can make it exactly and probably had but then what what caused that to keep going after disarmament what what didn't change cuz i feel like personally it wasn't really the atomic bomb that was just kind of the image we latched onto i feel like it was the red scare oh yeah Because culturally, we became paranoid of each other. Mm -hmm. And I think, like, one of those core central tenets of a lot of, especially the more negative, like, preppers' point of views is you don't know if there's no government, if the guy you're walking by
1: is gonna stab you, or if he's gonna help you. Oh, yeah. Literally, when you talk to, when anyone talks to an anarchist, the anarchist always gets the question, like, well, what are you going to do with the murderers then? What are you going to do with the rapists? What are you going to do with the pedophiles? Like, that's that's the most basic argument that anyone tries to make against any form of alternative community. So, yeah, like, that just plays into that paranoia because everyone is trying to plan for the worst case scenario without even realizing it.
0: Oh, yeah, for sure. And, you know, our culture kind of just... Plans for worst-case scenarios in general. We have school shooting drills. Mm -hmm. There are, like, what? Like, one or two other countries in the entire world that have school shooting drills? Yeah. Let alone, you know, at pretty much every school in the nation, down to baby children four or five years old like and it being a functional
1: known need
0: i you know i didn't grow up in the school shooting age there were a couple of shootings when i was young but they were mostly gang related and mostly only gang members got shot and I, i was in los angeles so that was pretty par for the course but we didn't have drills and i can't imagine growing up in that culture of being put through a mass shooter drill once every couple of months as a four or five-year-old. I would be terrified to be an adult.
1: So I didn't have them as a four or five-year-old. For a lot of my, like, early education, we were living on Air Force bases and things like that, so, you know, the odds of anyone showing up with a gun were pretty slim, and I guess they didn't feel the need to warn us off against that since they had the guns. Um, (laughs) but when I was in middle school, I actually ended up going to a public school just outside of the base, and that base was not in a great part of town, I guess, probably because so many infantrymen lived in that area. Um, but we did have a shooting drill there, and everyone was just very blasé about it, almost. And I think that speaks to the infrequency with which we perceived it to happen then, because I'm a year older than you.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So Well, it's also a
0: different environment, right? There's a lot more access to guns, Yeah. for instance, where you were growing up. And obviously, access to guns is pretty restricted in California, so when it happens, it's pretty rare.
1: Yeah, I was in the Midwest, Um, so, you know... Or it's
0: an illegal firearm, which is, you know, a whole other issue. Yeah,
1: whereas we had a lot of, like, hunter families. You know, I had a friend who would go deer hunting with her dad every season, things like Mm -hmm. that. So guns were just kind of a known entity there.
0: And I wonder if that blasé contributes to the perpetuation. I wonder if that blasé attitude where they're not making people take it seriously and they're not being like, hey, this is something you should be afraid of, contributes ultimately to enabling the kids that end up doing it. Uh, because, you know, they're being overlooked and everyone's like, uh, eh, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, And obviously we're not investing in our public mental health very much right now. Oh yeah, no.
1: So... Not to mention the fact that people tend to really only talk about the perpetrators of those incidents and not oh, yeah. the people who suffer from them, mm-hmm. which doesn't help. Like, I mean, I, <laughs> go ahead.
0: half of that is victim protections, right? Yeah. Like, the news doesn't want to just put the name of every victim on the news and splatter their picture everywhere and have to make them, like, live through being questioned about this incident every day for the rest of their yeah, life. Yeah, at the very least, they
1: have to get consent for that.
0: Yeah. On the other hand, though, yeah, I I can understand.
1: Like, I like true crime as much as the next person, but it's... I don't know. It hits different, I guess. Mm.
0: <laughs> so moving on to self-reliance. Um, what is self-reliance to you? Like, what does that mm. mean? Because I've found that the definition within the proper community typically means an absence of reliance on the government. It doesn't necessarily mean an absence of reliance on friends and neighbors, mm-hmm. but they don't want to be dependent on an overarching, like, system of any kind. They don't want to be reliant on a power grid. They yep. don't want to be reliant on a water system. I get what you're saying.
1: I guess to me it comes down to being able to sustain yourself without, again, like you said, any kind of organized system that you would have to lean on. Because when you think about it, if you're relying on your community and things like that, It's more of a share-and-share-alike thing. You're not expecting anything, but you are contributing with the knowledge that, you know, if something happens to you, there are people there who are willing and want to help.
0: It's such a strange cognitive duality to me. I mean, in the same breath, we're talking about how these people don't really trust other people and they see other people as a threat. Yeah. But then they also trust other people more than they trust the government, and see them as community members to be relied upon. A lot of the the preppers I was watching on YouTube, they talk about it this way. It's kind of, they don't even make the connection that they are in one breath praising people, and then in the next breath viewing them as direct competition for their own survival.
1: Yeah. I think it's interesting because as Americans, I feel like, in particular, tend to very much put their politicians on a pedestal.
0: Oh, for sure, yeah. When
1: they should, frankly, be making, you know, an average wage just like anybody else. hmm And I feel like that's kind of part of the issue—well, not issue, but, like, the dissonance. That when you're looking at your community, it's just more you. It's more people in your situation. It's more people, like, going through the same things you are day to day. So someone from your demographics, basically. Yeah, Even if not necessarily, you know, like racially, culturally, or anything else, you know that they are living under the same circumstances as you under the same So not demographics,
0: so like more like a connecting thread? Yeah, I'd almost say class. Okay. So specifically class status or something more specific?
1: I feel like class status because people tend to view like a family situation and things like that as more of like an even footing, at least from the perspective of adult to adult. That's a whole different thing, but... I guess what I'm trying to say is it's not like an employer-employee situation. It's companions.
0: Oh, okay. So a lack of power dynamics.
1: Yes, exactly. The power dynamic is more equal, whereas people tend to assume politicians have this, like, extant, like, like this massive amount of power, when in reality they don't. It's the... We've left our nation uneducated to the point where we don't know what these people can and can't do. Yeah. Which fosters the paranoia and, like, reticence to rely on them.
0: I mean, fear is bred from a lack of knowledge. Mostly, right? Uh, Someone can be afraid of jumping spiders the whole life and then find
1: out that they're actually pretty friendly. Yeah.
0: Or someone can be afraid of dolphins their whole life and find out that they're actually pretty chill if you don't fuck with them.
1: Yeah. um, People can be afraid of dogs because they got, like, bitten once as a kid, you know? mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Mm-hmm. So uh let's talk about overdiagnosis due to stigma
0: i feel like i feel like we look at a prepper and we diagnose them right like in our heads not consciously but like we kind of put them into this category of okay you're really afraid of the end of the world
1: and you're kind of
0: paranoid yeah you don't trust the government which means you have problems with authority you know like and they kind of tend to view them as antisocial or social isolationists. when yeah. in reality most of them aren't most no. of them actually participate more in their online communities about prepping oh yeah than they
1: do spend time alone prepping massively the end the only reason they're viewed as quote unquote like hermits or anything like that is because people aren't seeing their interactions or invalidating them because, you know, they're online.
0: Yeah. That's a whole other thing. Like I understand that parasocial relationships exist, but also you can connect to other human beings on the internet. It's still another person. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like I don't feel like that minimizes the relationship any. No, I agree. Obviously we <laughs> met online. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so obviously the social pressures that they face contribute yeah. to that, like, kind of glance diagnosis, right? Like, people, there's been this movement, and even in the gay community with Pride Month, where it's like, we need to accept country gays. Yeah. But then on the socioeconomic level, we look at quote-unquote rednecks and we go, oh, they're stupid, oh, they're in, you know, a blue-collar job, oh, they're, you know, just working, like, construction or something like that, and I don't care.
1: Exactly, Um, which, you know, frankly, I take a little personally, having grown up, you know, in essentially the southern Midwest, and the majority of the people that I hung around with, like, some of them didn't know if their, like, parents were going to be able to afford food that weekend or not. One of my best friends was... The assistant store manager of the McDonald's by our high school, our junior year. Yeah. The assistant store manager. And she still was making like six bucks an hour back then. Oh my god. (laughs) (laughs) And the majority of that went to her family because her mom was disabled and literally bedridden. And I barely ever got to see their dad, actually. I think he was a long-haul trucker.
0: I think that the South has so much more to offer America. I just think that the blue states sees them as a burden because mm. a lot of the tax money that gets taken from the blue states goes to the South to fund public education and stuff because some of the states in the South don't have the strongest economies on their own. Yeah. But then the South also resents that because they see it as liberal indoctrination mm. and like all this stuff. And it just feels like we can't come... To a point where we go, these are human beings, and if they were given access to education and security and food security, that maybe we'd have fewer instances of things like food hoarding. Yeah, I definitely
1: feel like there's an issue where those of us who grew up, you know, in the South and things like that tend to feel condescended to. So it's less so even about the assistance and more about the way it tends to be represented. Yeah, 100%. It's very much, oh, we need to help these poor people and lift them up from where they came from and things like that. And really, it's just, no, our demographic kind of sucks and we're very isolated here. You know, we're a very small state and we'd like a few dollars when it comes <laughs> down to it. Like, you can help somebody without making them feel like a charity case. Yeah, Which is, I, I know, something you tend to hear more from the conservative side of things, but like, there were definitely times in our lives where I felt like that.
0: Well, coming back around on that, um, that was actually kind of the point I was trying to make was that I feel like therapists, mm-hmm. when these kind of people come into their office, they're already kind of making the assumption, oh, this guy isn't going to listen to what I have to say. Yeah. This guy is a redneck through and through, and he doesn't give a fuck what yeah. I'm about to say to him. He's not going to listen to me. Nothing I'm going to say is going to get through, you know, thick-headed, hard-headed, whatever you want to call it. Exactly. And I feel like if they took the time to connect with them on something like prepping... Yeah. that ...and took the time to understand their community and, like, understood what they were saying in relation to that community because they had context... Can, that their mental health would be better because the therapist wouldn't be immediately like, okay, well, you have 150 food, ca- food cans in the basement and I'm going to diagnose you with like compulsive hoarding and
1: paranoia. Yeah. You know, like literally it can open so many doors. You know, you, you talk about the prepping and you talk about, you know, like, well, why do you, you know, why did you start prepping? And that can lead to, you know, food insecurity. And that can lead to, you know, a fear of being able to provide for your family. And that can lead to, Well, you know, my dad left when I was young, so we had a really hard time because it was just my mom providing for us or just growing up in the south and having food insecurity. Like food
0: deserts are
1: a thing. The majority of the farmlands in Oklahoma where I spent a good chunk of my childhood go to feeding the meat complex. Mm -hmm. It's it's not even food that's grown that we can eat. It's corn that is purely animal grade that is for the cows and stuff there. Which I didn't even know until recently, despite growing up there. Like It was really hard, actually, to find decent, fresh vegetables because it was having to be ported in because all of the stuff we were growing was corn to feed the meat. (laughs) That's very true. Well, uh, I think that pretty much wraps up
0: all the topics we wanted to touch on today. Any closing
1: thoughts? Uh, Not really for this round, I think. Just maybe don't make assumptions about people off of very limited information.
0: Yeah, class status isn't the human limitation. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. You could almost say that class is just a socio socioeconomic construct. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> all right.
0: Well, thank you for coming. Yeah, thank you. Special thanks to Bradley Garrett, Jesse Walker, Alicia Hasham, and Jordan McKenzie for their contributions to the show. Additional thanks to the YouTube preppers we use for audio contributions. Citations and links to works cited are available in the description of every episode. Please take the time to appreciate all of their amazing work. Thank you all so much for joining us for the second episode of culture of dread next time we'll be talking about true crime preppers extreme preppers and what we should be looking for as far as a dangerous prepper goes.